0: Section two of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 8, Part Three: The Marquise de Gange by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This Liebervax recording is in the public domain. Section two. The Marquis de Gange was the first to weary of this happy life. Little by little he began to miss the pleasures of a young man. He began to draw away from the Marquise and to draw nearer to his former friends. On her part, the marquise, who for the sake of wedded intimacy had sacrificed her habits of social life, threw herself into society, where new triumphs awaited her. These triumphs aroused the jealousy of the Marquis, but he was too much a man of his century to invite ridicule by any manifestation. He shut his jealousy into his soul, and it emerged in a different form on every different occasion. To words of love so sweet that they seemed the speech of angels, succeeded those bitter and biting utterances that foretell approaching division. Before long, the Marquis and the Marquise only saw each other at hours when they could not avoid meeting. Then, on the pretext of necessary journeys, and presently without any pretext at all, the Marquis would go away for three quarters of a year, and once more the Marquise found herself widowed whatever contemporary account one may consult one finds them all agreeing to declare that she was always the same that is to say full of patience calmness and becoming behavior it is rare to find such a unanimity of opinion about a young and beautiful woman about this time the marquis finding it unendurable to be alone with his wife during the short spaces of time which he spent at home invited his two brothers the chevalier and the abbé de Gange, to come and live with him. He had a third brother who, as the second son, bore the title of Comte, and who was colonel of the Languedoc Regiment, but as this gentleman played no part in this story, we shall not concern ourselves with him. The abbé de Gange, who bore that title without belonging to the church, had assumed it in order to enjoy its privileges. He was a kind of wit, writing madrigals and bout rhymes bout rhymes are verses written in a given set of rhymes on occasion a handsome man enough though in moments of impatience his eyes would take a strangely cruel expression as dissolute and shameless to boot as though he had really belonged to the clergy of the period the chevalier de Ganges, who shared in some measure the beauty so profusely showered upon the family was one of those feeble men who enjoy their own nullity, and grow on to old age and apt alike for good and evil, unless some nature of a stronger stamp lays hold on them, and drags them like faint and pallid satellites in its wake. This was what befell the Chevalier in respect of his brother, submitted to an influence of which he himself was not aware, and against which, had he but suspected it, he would have rebelled with the obstinacy of a child. He was a machine obedient to the will of another mind, and to the passions of another heart. A machine which was all the more terrible in that no movement of instinct, or of reason, could in his case, arrest the impulse given. Moreover, this influence which the Abbey had acquired over the Chevalier extended, in some degree also, to the Marquis. Having as a younger son no fortune having no revenue, for though he wore a churchman's robes, he did not fulfill a churchman's functions. He had succeeded in persuading the Marquis, who was rich, not only in the enjoyment of his own fortune, but also in that of his wife, which was likely to be nearly doubled at the death of Monsieur de Nocheret, that some zealous man was needed who would devote himself to the ordering of his house and the management of his property, and had offered himself for the post the marquis had very gladly accepted being as we have said tired by this time of his solitary home life and the abbe had brought with him the chevalier who followed him like his shadow and who was no more regarded than if he had really possessed no body the marquise often confessed afterwards that when she first saw these two men although their outward aspect was perfectly agreeable she felt herself seized by a painful impression, and that the fortune teller's prediction of a violent death, which she had so long forgotten, gashed out like lightning before her eyes. The effect on the two brothers was not of the same kind. The beauty of the marquise struck them both, although in different ways. The chevalier was in ecstasies of admiration, as though before a beautiful statue. But the impression that she made upon him was that which would have been made by marble, and if the Chevalier had been left to himself, the consequences of this admiration would have been no less harmless. Moreover, the Chevalier did not attempt either to exaggerate or to conceal this impression, and allowed his sister-in-law to see in what manner she struck him. The Abbe, on the contrary was seized at first sight with a deep and violent desire to possess this woman the most beautiful whom he had ever met but being as perfectly capable of mastering his sensations as the chevalier was incapable he merely allowed such words of compliment to escape him as weigh neither with him who utters nor her who hears them and yet before the close of this first interview the abbe had decided in his irrevocable will that this woman should be his as for the marquise although the impression produced by her two brothers-in-law could never be entirely effaced the wit of the abbe, to which he gave with amazing facility whatever turn he chose and the complete nullity of the chevalier brought her to certain feelings of less repulsion towards them for indeed the marquise had one of those souls which never suspect evil as long as it will take the trouble to assume any veil at all of seeming, and which only recognize it with regret when it resumes its true shape. Meanwhile, the arrival of these two new inmates soon spread a little more life and gaiety through the house. Furthermore, greatly to the astonishment of the Marquise, her husband, who had so long been indifferent to her beauty, seemed to remark afresh that she was too charming to be despised. His words accordingly began little by little, to express an affection that had long since gradually disappeared from them. The Marquise had never ceased to love him. She had suffered the loss of his love with resignation. She hailed its return with joy, and three months elapsed, that resembled those which had long ceased to be more to the poor wife than a distant and half-worn-out memory. Thus she had, with the supreme facility of youth, always ready to be happy, taken up her gladness again, without even asking what genius had brought back to her the treasure which she had thought lost, when she received an invitation from a lady of the neighborhood to spend some days in her country house. Her husband and her two brothers-in-law, invited with her, were of the party and accompanied her. A great hunting party had been arranged beforehand, and almost immediately upon arriving, everyone began to prepare for taking part in it, the Abbe, whose talents had made him indispensable in every company, declared that for that day he was the Marquise cavalier, a title which his sister-in-law, with her usual amiability, confirmed. Each of the huntsmen followed this example, made choice of a lady to whom to dedicate his attentions throughout the day. Then, this chivalrous arrangement being completed, all present directed their course toward the place of meeting. That happened, which almost always happens, the dogs hunted on their own account. Two or three sportsmen only followed the dog, the rest got lost. The Abbe, in his character of Esquire to the Marquise, had not left her for a moment, and had managed so cleverly that he was alone with her, an opportunity which she had been seeking for a month previously with no less care than the Marquise had been using to avoid it. No sooner, therefore, did the Marquise believe herself aware that the Abbe had intentionally turned aside from the hunt, than she attempted to gallop her horse in the opposite direction from that which she had been following. But the Abbe stopped her. The Marquise neither could nor would enter upon a struggle. She resigned herself, therefore, to hearing what the Abbe had to say to her. And her face assumed that air of haughty disdain which women so well know how to put on when they wish a man to understand that he has nothing to hope from them there was an instant silence the abbe was the first to break it madame said he i ask your pardon for having used this means to speak to you alone but since in spite of my rank of brother-in-law you did not seem inclined to grant me that favor if i had asked it i thought it would be better of me to deprive you of the power to refuse it to me if you have hesitated to ask me so simple a thing monsieur replied the marquise and if you have taken such precautions to compel me to listen to you it must no doubt be because you knew beforehand that the words you had to say to me were such as i could not hear have the goodness therefore to reflect before you open this conversation that here as elsewhere i reserve the right and i warn you of it to interrupt what you may say at the moment when it may cease to seem to me befitting as to that madame said the Abbe, i think i can answer for it that whatever it may please me to say to you you will hear to the end but." Indeed, the matters are so simple that there is no need to make you uneasy beforehand. I wish to ask you, madame, whether you have perceived a change in the conduct of your husband towards you?" "'Yes, monsieur,' replied the Marquise, and no single day has passed in which I have not thanked heaven for this happiness." "'And you have been wrong, madame.' returned the Abbe with one of those smiles that were peculiar to himself heaven has nothing to do with it thank heaven for having made you the most beautiful and charming of women and that will be enough thanksgiving without despoiling me of such as belong to my share i do not understand you monsieur said the marquise in an icy tone well I will make myself comprehensible, my dear sister-in-law. I am the worker of the miracle for which you are thanking heaven. To me, therefore, belongs your gratitude. Heaven is rich enough not to rob the poor." "'You are right, monsieur. If it is really to you that I owe this return, the cause of which I did not know, I will thank you in the first place and then afterwards I will thank Heaven for having inspired you with this good thought. "'Yes,' answered the Abbé. "'But Heaven, which has inspired me with a good thought, may equally well inspire me with a bad one, if the good thought does not bring me what I expect from it.' "'What do you mean, monsieur?' that there has never been more than one will in the family and that will is mine that the minds of my two brothers turn according to the fancy of that will like weathercocks before the wind and that he who has blown hot can blow cold i am still waiting for you to explain yourself monsieur well then my dear sister-in-law since you are pleased not to understand me i will explain myself more clearly my brother turned from you through jealousy i wish to give you an idea of my power over him and from extreme indifference i have brought him back by showing him that he suspected you wrongly to the ardors of the warmest love well i need only tell him that i was mistaken and fix his wandering suspicions upon any man whatever and I shall take him away from you, even as I have brought him back. I need give you no proof of what I say. You know perfectly well that I am speaking the truth. And what object had you in acting this part? To prove to you, madame, that at my will, I can cause you to be sad or joyful, cherished or neglected adored or hated madame listen to me i love you you insult me monsieur cried the marquise trying to withdraw the bridle of her horse from the Abbe's hands no fine words my dear sister-in-law for with me i warn you they will be lost to tell a woman one loves her is never an insult only there are a thousand different ways of obliging her to respond to that love the error is to make a mistake in the way that one employs Uh, that is the whole of the matter and may i inquire which you have chosen asked the marquise with a crushing smile of contempt the only one that could succeed with a calm cold a strong woman like you the conviction that your interest requires you to respond to my love since you profess to know me so well answered the marquise with another effort as unsuccessful as the former to free the bridle of her horse you should know how a woman like me would receive such an overture say to yourself what i might say to you and above all what I might say to my husband?" The Abbe smiled. "'Oh, as to that?' He returned. "'You can do as you please, madame. Tell your husband whatever you choose. Repeat our conversation word for word. Add whatever your memory may furnish, true or false. That may be most convincing against me. Then when you have thoroughly given him his cue, when you think yourself sure of him i will say two words to him and turn him inside out like this glove that is what i had to say to you madame i will not detain you longer you may have in me a devoted friend or a mortal enemy reflect at these words the abbe loosed his hold upon the bridle of the marquis's horse and left her free to guide it as she would The Marquise put her beast to a trot, so as to show neither fear nor haste. The Abbe followed her, and both rejoined the hunt. The Abbe had spoken truly. The Marquise, notwithstanding the threat which she had made, reflected upon the influence which this man had over her husband, and of which she had often had proof. And She kept silence, therefore, and hoped that he had made himself seem worse than he was to frighten her on this point she was strangely mistaken the abbe however wished to see in the first place whether the marquise's refusal was due to personal antipathy or to real virtue the chevalier as has been said was handsome he had that usage of good society which does instead of mind and he joined to it the obstinacy of a stupid man the abbe undertook to persuade him that he was in love with the marquise It was not a difficult matter. We have described the impression made upon the Chevalier by the first sight of Madame de Gange, but, owing beforehand the reputation of austerity that his sister-in-law had acquired, he had not the remotest idea of paying court to her. Yielding indeed to the influence which she had exercised upon all who came in contact with her, the Chevalier had remained her devoted servant and the marquise having no reason to mistrust civilities which she took for signs of friendliness and considering his position as her husband's brother treated him with less circumspection than was her custom the abbe sought him out and having made sure they were alone said chevalier we both love the same woman Then that woman is our brother's wife <laughs> do not let us thwart each other i am master of my passion and can the more easily sacrifice it to you that i believe you are the man preferred try therefore to obtain some assurance of the love which i suspect the marquise of having for you and from the day when you reach the point that i will withdraw but otherwise if you fail give up your place civilly to me that i may try in my turn whether her heart is really impregnable as everybody says. The Chevalier had never thought of the possibility of winning the Marquise, but from the moment in which his brother, with no apparent motive of personal interest, aroused the idea that he might be beloved, every spark of passion and of vanity that still existed in this automaton took fire, and he began to be doubly assiduous and attentive to his sister-in-law. She, who had never suspected any evil in this quarter, treated the Chevalier at first with a kindliness that was heightened by her scorn for the Abbe. But before long, the Chevalier, misunderstanding the grounds of this kindliness, explained himself more clearly. The Marquise, amazed, and at first incredulous, allowed him to say enough to make his intentions perfectly clear then she stopped him as she had done the abbe by some of those galling words which women derive from their indifference even more than from their virtue at this check the chevalier who was far from possessing his brother's strength and determination lost all hope and came candidly to own the latter the sad result of his intentions and his love this was what the abbe had awaited in the first place for the satisfaction of his own vanity and in the second place for the means of carrying out his schemes he worked upon the chevalier's humiliation until he had wrought it into a solid hatred and then sure of having him for a supporter and even for an accomplice he began to put into execution his plan against the marquise the consequence was soon shown in a renewal of alienation on the part of Monsieur de ganges a young man whom the marquise sometimes met in society and to whom, on account of his wit, she listened perhaps a little more willingly than to others, became, if not the cause, at least the excuse of a fresh burst of jealousy. This jealousy was exhibited, as on previous occasions, by quarrels remote from the real grievance. But the Marquise was not deceived. She recognized in this change the fatal hand of her brother-in-law. But this certainty instead of drawing her towards him increased her repulsion and thenceforward she lost no opportunity of showing him not only that repulsion but also the contempt that accompanied it matters remained in this state for some months every day the marquise perceived her husband growing colder and although the spies were invisible she felt herself surrounded by a watchfulness that took note of the most private details of her life as to the abbe and the chevalier, they were as usual; only the abbe had hidden his hate behind a smile that was habitual, and the chevalier his resentment behind that cold and stiff dignity in which dull minds enfold themselves when they believe themselves injured in their vanity. In the midst of all this Monsieur Johanniste de Nocheres died, and adding to the already considerable fortune of his granddaughter another fortune of from six to seven hundred thousand livres this additional wealth became on accruing to the marquise what was then called in countries where the roman law prevailed a, a paraphernal estate that is to say that falling in after marriage it was not included in the dowry brought by the wife and that she could dispose freely both of the capital and the income which might not be administered even by her husband without a power of attorney, and of which she could dispose at pleasure by no or by will. And in fact, a few days after the Marquise had entered into possession of her grandfather's estate, her husband and his brothers learned that she had sent for a notary in order to be instructed as to her rights. This step betokened an intention of separating this inheritance from the common property of the marriage— For the behavior of the Marquis towards his wife, of which within himself he often recognized the injustice, left him little hope of any other explanation. About this time a strange event happened. At a dinner given by the Marquise, a cream was served at dessert. All those who partook of this cream were ill. The Marquis and his two brothers, who had not touched it, felt no evil effects. The remainder of this cream, which was suspected of having caused illness to the guests, and particularly to the Marquise, who had taken of it twice, was analyzed, and the presence of arsenic in it demonstrated. Only having been mixed with milk, which is its antidote, the poison had lost some of its power, and had produced but half the expected effect. As no serious disaster had followed this occurrence, the blame was thrown upon a servant, who was said to have mistaken arsenic for sugar and everybody forgot it or appeared to forget it the marquis however seemed to be gradually and naturally drawing nearer again to his wife but this time madame de ganges was not deceived by his returning kindness there as in his alienation she saw the selfish hand of the abbe he had persuaded his brother that seven hundred thousand livres more in the house would make it worth while to overlook some levities of behavior. And the Marquis, obeying the impulse given, was trying, by kind dealing, to oppose his wife's still unsettled intention of making a will. Towards the autumn there was talk of going to spend that season at Ganges, a little town situated in Lower Languedoc, in the diocese of Montpellier, seven leagues from that town, and nineteen from Avignon. Although this was natural enough, since the Marquis was lord of the town and had a castle there, the Marquise was seized by a strange shudder when she heard the proposal. Remembrance of the prediction made to her returned immediately to her mind. The recent and ill-explained attempt to poison her uh, too very naturally added to her fears without directly and positively suspecting her brothers-in-law of that crime she knew that in them she had two implacable enemies this journey to a little town this abode in a lonely castle amid new unknown neighbors seemed to her of no good omen but open opposition would have been ridiculous on what grounds indeed could she base resistance The marquise could only own her terrors by accusing her husband and her brothers-in-law. And of what could she accuse them? The incident of the poisoned cream was not a conclusive proof. She resolved accordingly to lock up all her fears in her heart and to commit herself to the hands of God. Nevertheless, she would not leave Avignon without signing a will, which she had contemplated making ever since Monsieur de Nauchere's death a notary was called in who drew up the document the marquise de ganges made her mother madame de Rossan, her sole inheritor and left in her charge the duty of choosing between the testatrix's two children as to which of them should succeed to the estate these two children were one a boy of six years old and other a girl of five but this was not enough for the marquise so deep was her impression that she would not survive this fatal journey she gathered together secretly and at night the magistrates of avignon and several persons of quality belonging to the first families of the town and there before them verbally at first declared that in case of her death she begged the honourable witnesses whom she had assembled on purpose not to recognise as valid voluntary or freely written anything except the will which she had signed the day before And affirmed beforehand that any later will which might be produced would be the effect of fraud or of violence then having made this verbal declaration the marquise repeated it in writing signed the paper containing it and gave the paper to be preserved by the honour of those whom she constituted its guardians such a precaution taken with such minute detail aroused the lively curiosity of her hearers many pressing questions were put to the marquise but nothing could be extracted from her except that she had reasons for her action which she could not declare the cause of this assemblage remained a secret and every person who formed part of it promised the marquise not to reveal it on the next day which was that preceding her departure for Ganges, the marquise visited all the charitable institutions and religious communities in avignon she left liberal alms everywhere with the request that prayers and masses should be said for her, in order to obtain from God's grace that she should not be suffered to die without receiving the sacraments of the church. In the evening she took leave of all her friends, with the affection and the tears of a person convinced that she was bidding them a last farewell. And finally she spent the whole night in prayer, and the maid who came to wake her found her kneeling in the same spot where she had left her the night before. End of section two. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.